We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word, help us to see what you would want us to see from this and guide and show us how, through your spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Lamentations chapter four. In Lamentations, we're seeing the consequence of sin and the destruction, the, how it, sin destroys the beauty of holiness and, and testimony. And you know, this is the sad thing for us as Christians, it's bad enough to sin as a lost person because uh, it just destroys life. But it is interesting, even for the worldly people, there are some people that I look at them and they look like they're about 190, you know, because sin has taken such a toll on their body. They're slumped over, their skin is messed up, their eyes are dead, their, their skin is sunken, you know, and you're going, and you, and you start talking to them and they go, well, you know, my 40 years have been hard. <laughs> and you're like, what? <laughs> Yeah, I would never say that, but I think that in the back of my mind, you, I would have swore you were in your 80s or 90s, not, not 40 years old. But sin is a destructive feature, even amongst our body, not just our spirit, but our body suffers from it. And so we're going to see here the lamentation from, from uh, Jeremiah is the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the testimony. And for us as Christians, when we sin, we do get the consequences of it. But the worst consequence, I think, for us as Christians is what we do to our testimony amongst other people. When they see our sin, they go, that is what a Christian is, or as so many people who claim to be Christians are, well, all you Christians are nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And from their total definition, we all are because we all sin. But this is where we have our opportunity to repent and rebound and let people see that it isn't all just <laughs> hypocrites. It's, we are fallen people that have to work on our growth. And so here we're going to be in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 1. How has the gold become dim? How has the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. The precious sons of Zion, com comparable to the fine gold, how are they esteemed as earthen pitchers, the works of the hands of the potter. Even the sea monsters draw out the breast and give suck to their young ones. The daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the, in the wild uh, wilderness. The tongue of the suckling cleaves to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask for bread, but no man breaks it unto them. They that did feed delicately are desolate in the streets. They that are brought up in scarlet embraced dung hills. For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of God, Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment, and no hand stayed on her. Her Nazarites were purer than snow and were whiter than, than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was as sapphire. Their vis visage is blacker than, the, than a coal. And... They are not known in the streets. Their skin cleaves to their bones. It is withered. It has become like a stick. They that are slain by the sword are better than they that are slain with hunger. For these pine away, stricken through want of the fruits of the field. The hands of the pitiful woman have sodden their own children. They were their meat for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Stop there. <laughs> I don't, I don't even know if I'm going to get that far as we go through this. So here we are. How the gold has become dim. 
how the most fine gold is changed, the stones of the sanctuary are poured out at the top of every street. Now remember, as we read this, we talked about this when we first started this, this is Jewish poetry, and the way they do poetry is called parallelism. So when we read two sections on here, these are similar things. So we want to note, this tells us what the gold that he's referring to is the gold of the sanctuary. Because the second part is very clearly the stones of the sanctuary, because he says so. All right. Uh, so he says, how the gold has become dim and the most fine gold changed. And remember, the, the temple that Solomon built, everything was covered with gold. You know, David had put tons of gold into the treasury for the temple. And when they built the temple, they covered all the interior of it with gold and then etched the gold and everything was gold. And he says, the gold is dim. The gold has been taken down and they kept it polished and it was a jewel to the, to the world. When they would come up to Jerusalem, the sun would shine off the temple and off all that gold and would be seen for, I, would, I don't know how many miles you could see it for, you know, however far you could see the mountain from, uh, that would be like a lighthouse on it. And I've never been out at sea, but I've been told from sailors they like to see those lighthouses because they can see it for miles and miles and miles. As soon as they get up high enough on the horizon to be able to see that lighthouse, that bright light shines and they, and they know they're close to home. And this is the way that the uh, temple was to them. It shone brightly on that hill of Jerusalem. And it says, your stones are at the top of every street. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered, the, conquered Jerusalem, he tore down their wall, which was a big wall, and they tore down brick by brick the temple. Mostly because for the same reason the Romans did late, you know, later on when the Romans destroyed it, the gold was melting off the temple into the rocks and into the stones and the gaps of the stones. So they tore down the entire building so they could get all the gold out off the building. Huh? They set it on fire. They set the whole place on fire. And then the gold would melt. And then it melted into the cracks. <laughs> and to get the gold out of the cracks, they literally tore it apart brick by brick, stone by stone, not brick by brick, but stone by stone. And so here is his lament, you know, the temple, the jewel of Jerusalem has been torn down and scattered. You know, they, they just threw the bricks, you know, threw the raw stones every direction as they were trying to get to the gold. I think there was a little bit of lust involved there, you know, a frenzy, you know, we got to get this gold and get it, get it out. Uh, and so he's, he's going, how is that? And he says, how precious son, the precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold, and this is purified or refined gold. So there's, this is kind of an interesting thing. Each, each type of gold that's referenced here is a different type of gold. The first gold he references, how is the gold, that is just pure, is just base gold, not real, real fine. The second one I didn't want to mention this is the, the fine gold, this is the gold that had been refined to the place that they used it for um, jewelry and making things pretty. And then the, how precious are the sons of Zion compared to fine gold here is gold that has been through the refiner's fire, been baked, been heated up. 
Uh, so he says, the sons of Zion were like fine gold, refined gold. And he goes, how are they esteemed as earthen pots? They have been dropped from fine gold description to clay pots. That's uh, quite a bit of drop in, in estimation. And this is as Jeremiah is watching the people being carted away, he sees the royalty in bedraggled clothes because remember they've been in siege for a year and a half. Everything has been gone, everything is bedraggled. They have been literally eating anything they can find. All right, and when we say eating anything they can find, uh, Jeremiah tells us they were that a handful of pigeon dung was being sold for multiple shekels. Okay, uh, that's how hungry they were. All right, so they're being led away as nothing. And when, when the conquerors led people away, especially the king, he would be wrapped up in chains. They would usually put a ring in his nose and put it, put it to a chain. And if he fell, they drug him until the ring pulled out of his nose. Uh, that's the viciousness of what they would, were doing to what Nebuchadnezzar and his people would do to the conquered. And they had other chains so that they pulled him with chains anyways. And, and remember, the king was not used to walking in the first place. And they walked him all the way to, to Babylon. You know, uh, and the king was the one who would ride, ride the horse and the chariot and all of this. I mean, that walking into Babylon was not what the king would have normally done. And they had him wrapped in chains. And if he fell down, they just drug him for a while. And you know, so he's getting bloodied and beat up uh, you know, by the rocks and everything because their roads were not near as smooth as our roads. Uh, even our dirt roads are smoother than what their roads were. And we have some bad dirt roads too. <laughs> Uh, but he says, they have become like the work of the hands of the potter. They're just the throwaway broken pots. And this is quite a fall that he's picturing. He, he sees, we see the depression that he sees as sin has conquered Jerusalem. The, the fall from the greatness all the way down, literally, to the bottom. And he's hoping for repentance at this point, hoping that people will repent. Then in verse 3, he says, Even the sea monsters draw out the breast. They give suck to their young ones. The daughters of my people are become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. Now, one of the things on this is the word sea monster here. Yeah, mine says uh, Yours is going to say jackals. You've got a newer version. Uh, if you have an NIV, it's going to say jackals. We believe, most scholars believe, that this word was mistranslated in this scripture because... There's two different Greek word, uh, Hebrew words that are very close here. One is tanin, which means sea monster, serpent, uh, dragon is most awfully translated as. And the other one is tanin, which means jackal. All right. But so they believe because this would be the plural of jackals is tanaim, which is very close to tanin. In, its, in the Hebrew writing, so it is believed that this should be jackals because we don't know of any reptiles that feed their young by milk. So there would be a sea monster being a reptile would not have been feeding its, feeding its young by milk, so it's probably very true that it is jackals. 
So the newer versions got that one right. They don't always get it right, but occasionally they do get it right. Now, many places they take the word tenim and translate it as jackals, where the King James and older versions translate it as dragons. Uh, because they go in, dragons are myth, mythological character, uh, creatures and therefore never existed. And I am of the school of thought that dragons were dinosaurs of their day uh, and they lived with mankind just like God said they did and died out just recent in, in recent years. Uh, because we see pictures of dragons being drawn into, cut into uh, many places in the, around the world. Uh, so I believe that dragons were just another word for dinosaurs because people will, people will try to go, well, dinosaur isn't in the Bible. Well, of course it's not in the Bible because dinosaur was only created in, in, 19, in 1841 and the Bible was written in, in uh, 16. <laughs> you know, so there's no way dinosaur would be in the Bible. <laughs> but the word dragon is, which if, and if you look at the descriptions of places that are, that are using dragon, they would fit dinosaurs. Uh, you look around the, the world and you see dinosaurs everywhere. So enough commentary on that one because we've talked about this at other times. <laughs> but this one was a place where the word should have been probably jackal. It should have been tanim <laughs> rather than ta tanin <laughs> on it. And so it should be probably jackals because the you know, reptiles don't feed their young white milk. So... And then it says, the daughters of my people have become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. Now this one, I'm not quite sure of how this is because in Proverbs we're told that the ostrich lays its eggs and then abandons them. But that doesn't even fit into what the, so I'm wondering if the word ostrich is not what we think of as ostriches. Because Solomon would not have gotten it wrong in Proverbs saying that the ostrich you know, lays its eggs and buries it. We know the ostriches of, of Africa actually nest their eggs. And actually, I was reading up on this because I was trying to find out. The entire herd lays all their eggs in one place oh, wow. and take turns uh, sitting on the eggs. Oh, wow. uh, and, their, and their herd, you know, flock herd, whatever they call them, is around you know, 30 or 40 of them. So they will have this whole pot of 40 to 60 eggs and they take turns taking care of it, so it doesn't fit. But one of the commentators did say that in the deserts of this area, what they call ostriches have this mournful howl sound that they make. And it's kind of a scary thing until you know what, know what they are. And so I think that's kind of what he's talking about there. He's saying the daughters of the people are so cruel like the ostriches. They're mourning you know, for all that they have done. And we're going to get into some of what they've done. Um, at one place, they're, they're cooking their babies so that they can eat. Uh, and so, and then it says in verse 4, The tongue of the suckling cleaves to the, to the roof of his mouth for first. The young children ask for bread, and no one breaks it unto them. Here he's giving the picture of the starvation level here. The ones that are nursing, you know, the sucklings, the ones that are nursing aren't getting fed enough to even quench their thirst and the children are not getting bread. Now this is not the only place in history that this has happened, but we do know that this happened in Jerusalem during this period of time, happened during a previous time when you, uh, one of the other kings. But if you realize the history of Germany, do you know that Hitler got, got elected to office in Germany 
because he made one promise to the people of the Wehrmacht Republic. He said, I'll give you a loaf of bread every day. During that period of time, people would go to work. They had to be paid two and three times a day so that their wives could take the money and buy what they needed before the prices went up so high that they could, the day's wages wouldn't buy anything. They were being paid three times a day. And they still weren't surviving. And Hitler came along and said, I'll give you a loaf of bread every day. And they voted for him. And that was eight years before he became the dictator. Uh, but this is when people get hungry, hungry enough, they get desperate. And when a rich country starts falling down, people get hungry pretty fast because they're used to eating. It's an amazing thing to me that you know when we talk about people that are starving in America, most of our people starving in America eat more than anybody else in the world does and aren't considered starving. And I'm not belittling their plight. You know, they're in a, they're in a country where we eat. You know, we eat three times a day, and we usually eat big meals three times a day. Uh, I have lived in, in another, technically it was America, but it wasn't America. Uh, it was a territory, and the people were just eating twice a day for the most part. And they ate very much like the Asians. You know, rice, and then a little bit of meat and stuff, on, and rice on the, on the, on the, after, on the evening. And they felt happy that they had that. You know, uh, but here is a picture of people. Remember, Jerusalem before the siege was a rich nation, the star of the area, you know, much, much wealth. And all of a sudden, God cut them off. And so they are hungry, and they're having problems. And there's no bread for them to eat. Year and a half into the siege, and there's no bread. No food to eat, no nutritious food to eat. Um, and he said, and then he goes into that they do eat, they that did eat delicately are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embraced dunghills. And this embracing of dunghills will lead to just that statement. Uh, ash heaps, uh, dunghills is the right word. Um, they were doing embracing of food uh, that they would never have thought they would ever dream of eating. And this is one of the things that I see sometimes when I'm handing out food and stuff in a food bank, and I've done this several over several years, and people turn up their noses to good food because they're not really that hungry. You know, because, and you're going, you know, if you were really hungry, you would not be turning your nose up to anything that's edible. It may not be your. It may not be what you want. Rice and beans a lot. We used to eat rice and beans all the time when I was growing up. That was about all we could afford, and we'd have two pounds of beans with a half a pound of pork, uh, pork or beef in it, and if we were lucky, uh, you know, just a little bit of meat to flavor it. And usually it was a, a ham hock or a or or a or a, or a neck neck bone or something, you know. It's, and that was our meat because we had too many people and too little income. Now, we didn't starve. We weren't, didn't, didn't feel like we were starving, but that was what we grew up on. And it filled us. And actually, you could have quite a meal for a very low amount of money. <laughs> so these ones, he says, he's, he, these, these are out there. And then it says in verse 6, For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom. 
that was overthrown in a moment and no hand stayed on her. This is kind of an interesting statement. He says the punishment on Jerusalem is worse than it was on Sodom. I think he's saying this you know, out of his fear and everything. Sodom was totally destroyed in an instant. He says that our punishment is lasting and being drawn out. It's lasted an hour, a year and a half just on starving us out. And now we're being drugged into another nation. He goes, we're having to, we're having to suffer for a long time. Sodom just was done <laughs> and it was over. The God fire rained down fire and brimstone on them and they were gone in, a, in, a, in an afternoon. Jerusalem has taken a year and a half of siege and several years before that, that they had been up and down on their conquering on it and they're starving, they're hungry. Now they're being drugged off to Babylon. And he's saying, this is more than we can handle. And we got to remember for the Jewish people to be taken out of their homeland is a really big deal. It's a big deal to be taken out of your homeland, period. But for the Jewish people, they had nothing to do with Gentiles. Gentiles were the scum of the earth as far as they were concerned. And they're being drugged off by the Gentiles to a Gentile land to live with no temple to offer sacrifices at. And the word of God, there, as far as they're concerned, has been destroyed because it was, they think it was in the temple. Somebody had to have salvaged it. God protected it, obviously. But as far as they're concerned, everything has been destroyed. Their religion, their land, everything. Their God has let them down as far as they're concerned. And it's very amazing that they considered God their God, even though they didn't worship him. They were worshiping idols and, and listening to false prophets. And yet, in their mind, God has let them down. And it's an amazing thing to me how many lost people, how many atheists will even say, you know, I can't believe that God has let these things happen. And I'm going, I didn't think you believed in God. Well, I don't. Well, then why did you just say God let something happen? You know, it's an amazing thing to me how many times the lost especially are so double-minded. You know, say two things diametrically opposed to each other and, and say I believe both of them. Now, the sad thing is when I hear Christians do that because they should know the truth and, and, and follow the truth and learn to speak truth. But it is so interesting to see the way the world reacts. They will, you know, say things so interesting, do things that are so interesting, say I believe one thing and do exactly the opposite of what they say they believe. It's amazing to me how many people will say, I believe that life is important and sacred as they're, you know, committing abortion. You know, and because they don't consider it life. You know, or as the biggest movements are now, animals are more important to us than human beings. You know, we've got to protect those animals. They're so totally defenseless. We've got to make sure they're taken care of. I don't care if these people all over here die because they're people. They can take care of themselves. The animals can't take care of themselves. You know, and they're going, is life important or not? And we need to be able to say, is it? God says we are created in his image. We have a higher place than the animals. We, we have rule over them. Now, that doesn't mean I want to go see every animal destroyed and wiped out. But if it comes down to man or an animal, 
I'm going to say God put man in charge. And it's an amazing thing that people worry about animals going extinct. Since the fall of man, animals have been going extinct every year, forever. And you know, we now start worrying about them. And that's good that we're worrying about them and trying to keep them around, but let's be careful about how we do it. Uh, it's, it's, impo it's important to keep these animals alive to a degree. You know, it's an amazing thing when you talk, when you talked about dinosaurs, you know, people go, well, what happened to the dinosaurs? Well, it's real simple. As Ken Ham says, they went extinct. Just like millions of animals do every year, they, go, they went extinct. It's not, it's not a hard, <laughs> hard thing. Uh, they were really big. After the flood, the entire environment changed, and they probably couldn't handle the new, the new terrain and the new, the new plants and everything and the new weather. They were reptiles, very large reptiles. And if you are used to reptiles, which we are a little more around here than most places, you know, reptiles, when weather changes drastically, have to wait for a long time for their body to acclimatize to that new weather. Now, we've been commenting how cold it got quickly. Well, if you're a reptile, you don't acclimatize. You don't have blood. You don't have any way to protect yourself. Your whole body has to change to the new temperature that changed almost instantly. Now, imagine if you're talking about a dinosaur, 20 tons of reptile <laughs> that has to change temperature quickly. <laughs> That would be a pretty traumatic thing for them. So they went extinct. With the new environment, they went extinct. It says, her Nazarites were purer than snow and were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies, and their polishing was of sapphire. Now, Nazarite is, just literally means those that are separate. Now, in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 12, we're told what a Nazarite is as far as God was concerned. A Nazarite would take a vow to separate themselves. And in those verses, he would, he, they would be separated. They would not drink any wine. They would not eat any grapes. They would not eat any grape leaves. They would not touch anything dead. They would not let a razor touch their head. Uh, they would, uh, let's see, what else was it that they did? Uh, no, no vinegar that was made from a grape. Uh, so anything to do that could potentially be alcoholic, they were to do nothing with. They were to separate themselves for a period of time. And then when they were done with their vow, they would go to the temple, make an offering to God, and they would cut their hair, shave off their hair. All right. Uh, one of the greatest Nazarites that we know about is Samson. Now, Samson was raised to be a Nazarite. He broke every Nazarite vow as he was growing up. Uh, but until, uh, until he broke the last one and had his head shaved, <laughs> and that was the only one he didn't do himself. It, he had, it was done for him. And yet God said, okay, that was the last one. You have no strength. And then he had to recognize that God was his strength. It wasn't, wasn't his hair. Uh, but he was one of the famous Nazarites in the Bible. But literally, it means to be separate. So here he's saying, her separate ones were purer than snow. 
And this word for pure means bright and shiny. They were healthy. They were, uh, they were at the peak of health. You know, when you see somebody who is exercised and their, their skin is gl almost glowing, uh, you know, this is the description that he's good. They were whiter than milk. And literally, this was a description they have of white paint. It was whiter than milk because uh, their paint was not that <laughs> was hard to get there, get to a white paint. So it was a description that they had. Their bodies were ruddy or red, and it's redder than rubies. And their, their features were chiseled as in, a, you know, or polished or cut and separated. These people were, I would say they were the athletes of the day. They were the models of the day. They looked at them and said, now that's what I want to be like. That's, I want to look just like them. <laughs> we think that's new. There's nothing new about that. People have been doing that for millennia. They pick out somebody and say, now that is what a man's supposed to look like. That is what a woman's supposed to look like. The funny thing is that those traditions change over the years. Uh, I saw some pictures from the 1930s, and, it said, and the postcard said, here come the bathing beauties. And I looked at it, and I'm going, yeah, those, those uh, ladies uh, definitely have some size to them. <laughs> uh, you know, our beauties today are supposed to be thin as rail sticks, you know, that I don't think is very beautiful. And that one had a different picture of beauty. And that has happened over the years. What is beautiful? What do people choose to be saying, that's what I think is a, is a good-looking person? But his description here is, these Nazarites, these separated ones, they were being looked at and saying, ah, that's, now that's what a man's supposed to look like. That's what the woman's supposed to look like. The chiseled features, whatever their hair color was, you know, um, they've, they've got red on their cheeks, you know, whatever that, you know, however they made themselves reddish, you know. Um, maybe they were sunburnt, I don't know. <laughs> They're coming up as a reddish color. Uh, and then in verse 8 it says, their vestige is blacker than cold. They are not known in the streets. Their skin cleaves to their bones. It is withered. It is, it is become like a stick. So these people in the two and a half years, uh, the th a year and a half of famine, have gotten to the place where their skin and bones. Nothing that for people looking at. They are... Their skin, their vicious is blacker, and this word literally means to be darkened. Uh, darkened as the coal or a pit. So they, they're, they've lost all their luster. They were shiny, healthy bodies. Now they are uh, a sham of their former, former picture. They have totally wasted away. And, you know, he's saying this is what's going on. Uh, verse 9 is, They that are slain with the sword are better than they that are slain with hunger. For these pine away, pine away stricken through for want of fruits in the field. And this is quite a statement. And basically he's saying here, a quick death is better than a slow death. And I think I agree with him. I think if I have to die, I'd like to be a quick death rather than a slow death. And that's why he said the destruction of Sodom was better than the destruction that they were going through. Theirs was a slow, agonizing punishment where they have suffered. 
And he said it would have been better, you know, in his mind he's saying it would have been better to go out and charge Nebuchadnezzar and be killed by arrows and swords than to have starved to death in the city. And this is the picture of what's going on, and this is how bad things were in Jerusalem. Uh, verse 10, the hands of the pitiful woman, women have sodden their own children. They were, they were their meat for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Literally, the word sodden means to be boiled. Yours might say they ate or cooked. Verse 10. The pitiful, sad. This one, this one says compassionate. Huh? Mike says compassionate. Compassion, that's totally different than pitiful. Well, I can understand where they might come up with that, but it would be pitiful when you're eating your own child. I don't know how you could eat your own child and have compassion. Well, you could have that side of it. Um, I didn't look up the word pitiful, so I apologize. I didn't even look that word up. I was stuck with the idea of cooking your children and eating them. Yeah, I think that would be, uh, that would be disgrace. Well, at, at one point, though, I mean, I can understand from one side of the story might be, you know, I'm going to put them out of their misery. Yeah, I'm putting them out of their misery. Uh, that was a stretch, but I could understand how a mother might feel that way if, it's, if things are bad enough. But cannibal I mean what he's bringing out the whole point of this is he's bringing out cannibalism was was running rampant in in Jerusalem at that time uh, you know if people were dying they were being eaten you know, just because they didn't want to start you know didn't want to starve to death you know and never been there but it's happened in many times in history where uh, the, in Donner's Pass, you know, they got stuck and they started eating each other. As, they die, as people died, they started eating each other to try to stay alive, and only a handful left. Uh, it's happened in many places where people have said, you know, I, to live, I will do what it takes to live. And this just shows how bad things had gotten in Jerusalem. They were willing to consume each other and consume their own children. And I can't even picture that. I've never been that hungry. I don't ever want to be that hungry. And I don't know if you know, if I was that hungry, I could do it. And I'm sure there were people in Jerusalem that couldn't do it. But after a year and a half of hunger, who knows? Who knows what you would be driven to if things get bad enough? And it's also a picture of what things will be like in the tribulation period. You know, when food is scarce, everything is scarce, what will people do? when pushed far enough. And then you don't have the church saying it's wrong. It's very interesting to me as I look. This world is getting worse and worse with every passing year. And the church is stopping a lot of things from happening. How bad would this world be if the church was not here? True Christians weren't here to say this is wrong. Don't let it happen. Now, we're in a losing battle, and we can't win it in the long run anyway because it's all been predicted that it's going to get you know, worse. But just how bad would things be if the church wasn't there saying it's wrong? Or let's say Christians. Christians saying it's wrong. Don't do it. And yet, this is how far Jerusalem had fallen. They weren't obeying God. They were, you know, they were just doing whatever it took to stay alive 
not recognizing that they needed God. And this is the sad part. They forgot God. And because they forgot God, great destruction had fallen upon them. And, you know, this is something we need to be worried about as we're looking at, well, not worried about, concerned about in the future. As our country goes further and further away from God and forgets God more and more, our world is getting darker. Our country is getting darker the further we get from God. And there's going to come that time when all of it's going to fall just as it did in Jerusalem. And I'm not saying every single person in Jerusalem was not godly. But the overwhelming majority had switched over and God says it's time for judgment to fall. When will that happen in, in America, in our world? I don't know. But there will come a point in time where God says there's too much evil, not enough good. Judgment falls. And the just will receive, you know, the, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. The, the, the earthquake hits the just and the unjust. The, the hurricane, you know, when a hurricane comes through, there are righteous people that get hurt and die. When a tornado goes through, righteous people die just as much as the unrighteous die. God isn't up there saying, well, you know, that's a Christian. Don't touch them. That, that, one's, that one's a sinner. They deserve it. But that one's mine. That one's mine. You, you know, you got the, you know, tornado jumping up and down room, for, room from room, you know, because you've got half the family saved, half the family not saved. So it, you know, takes half the room because the husband and wife are sleeping together and takes half the room and, and leaves the other one there. That's not what God does. You know, he just says, judgment falls. And this is what's happened in Jerusalem. Verse 11, the Lord hath accomplished his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger. He hath kindled the fire in Zion, and it has devoured the foundations thereof. The kings of the earth and the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. For the sins of her prophets and the sins of her priests, which have shed blood of the just in the midst of her. They have wandered as blind men in the streets. They have polluted themselves with blood so that the men could not touch their garments. They cried unto them, Depart you, for it is unclean. Depart, depart, touch not. When they fled away and wandered, they said among the heathen, They shall no more sojourn there. The anger of the Lord has divided them. He will no more regard them. They, they, they respected not the person of the priest, nor... They favored not the elder. As for us, our eyes are yet failed for our vain help in our watching. We have watched for a nation that could not save us. So here we have him saying, God has completed his fury. He has poured out his anger, his fierce anger. Now, for us in our day and age as Christians, sometimes we forget that God is a God of justice. He is a God of of judgment when it's, when it's needed. And we get so wrapped up as Christians in his love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness that we forget that he's also righteous, holy, and just. And there is always a place where God says enough is enough and brings judgment down upon the people. Now, we saw it a lot in the Old Testament. We see it a little bit in the New Testament. But as we look around us, we still see it today. The righteous will hold back God's wrath for a period of time, but at some point, God's wrath falls and takes things out. 
And verse 12 is kind of interesting. It says, The kings of the earth, all the inhabitants of the world, would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. This is a reference to Uzziah, King Uzziah, when, when Israel had, Jerusalem had almost fallen at one point. He had so fortified it that history said it was impregnable. Nobody could conquer Jerusalem. And for hundreds of years, that was the consideration. Nobody could conquer Jerusalem. The few that tried could not, get, could not take it. Uh, and you know, throughout history, there's all kinds of military installations that have been considered impregnable. You know, this will never be conquered. There's military installations that are considered impregnable. That historically, though, everything that's been considered impregnable eventually falls. Somebody gets smart enough, strong enough, infiltrate it, whatever, and, take, and takes it out. Jerusalem was this way. In Jeremiah 11, uh, 21 verses 11 through 14, it said just that. Nobody would take Jerusalem, but God at the end of it, and I want to read that to you because I, I thought it was interesting as I marked that. Jeremiah 21, starting at verse 11. And touching the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear you the word of the Lord. O house of David, thus saith the Lord, execute judgment in the morning and deliver him that is spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go out like a fire and burn, and none can, and none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and the, and the rock of the plain, says the Lord. Who can come down... In, uh, says the Lord, which say to the people, who shall come down against us and who shall enter our habitation? Nobody's going to conquer us. And God says, but I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, saith the Lord. I will kindle the fire in the forest thereof and I shall devour all things around it. Basically saying, what you trust, I will destroy. And this is the thing we need to understand. In our lives, how many times do we build up a fortress and a wall against God even and say, nobody can get to me. And God says, you haven't built your foundation on me. And he eventually tears down that wall. There are people that walk in sins over, over and over again and say, I am in control of my sin. That my, you know, I can quit my sin anytime I want. Put your sin's name in there, whatever it might be. You know, uh, I can do it whenever I want. I can get rid of it. I can stop. I can do all this. And God says, all right. And he says, I will tear down your, your walls. And then he actively goes against you. And this can be any sin. You know, it could be somebody who's got a sin of anger, lust, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is. They're going, I can, I can stop this at any time. And God says, okay, here's your opportunity to stop. Oh, you're not stopping. Let me help you as he tears the bottom right out from under you and says, oh, now you're in the gutter, now what are you going to do? And this is what he's doing with them. And then he says, all of this, again, in verse 13, was for the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of the prophets that have, uh, priests which have shed blood of the just in her midst. God's priests and prophets. These weren't God's priests and prophets because these were ones that had the titles false prophets. Jeremiah would come in and say, God is going to judge us, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and, and, and sue for peace, and God will leave us in the country and, as, when we repent. And 50 false prophets would say, no, we're going to be victorious, we'll never fall. 
And it's kind of hard to be, and we've all seen it, where you're the only voice for God in a room full of people claiming to be voices for God and saying exactly the opposite of what God says. And Jeremiah would go in and a dozen people would stand up and say the opposite of what he was saying. They would, which led to people's deaths. And he says, these liars, these false prophets. And the sad thing is I look around and I see how many false teachers there are around this country. Many of them have TV shows. Many of them have large churches as they tickle people's ears and tell them what they want to hear rather than teach them the truth of God. They're going to be responsible for the fall and the bloodshed of the people when God brings judgment, just as these false prophets were. And I'm not going to name names, but there are people all over the place that aren't teaching God's word. They have lar- many of them have large churches. Well, they're teaching worldly things. Feel yeah. good, you know. As long as you love one another, you're going to be okay. As long as you're doing more good. And you look at them and they, and they get wealthy as they're fleecing God's flock and fleecing the people. And you're going, don't you understand the judgment that's coming? Jeremiah is saying, don't you guys understand the judgment is coming? You know, and they didn't. They thought they were getting way, away with it. They were being rewarded. The king was, they were saying what the king wanted. He was giving them all kinds of rewards for what they were saying. They were tickling his ear saying, oh, nobody will ever take Jerusalem. This Jeremiah guy, don't listen to him. Just throw him in the dungeon where he belongs. He's a false prophet. And it's amazing how many times the false prophets and teachers will attack the true teachers. Because you can't have truth being spoken. And even though the truth is only a small voice, a small candle, they want to get rid of it. And we want to be careful of that. It goes, for the sins of them, it says they have wandered as blind men in the streets. They have polluted themselves with blood. This is, these are supposed to be the people that were teaching people how to walk. So often we have the blind spiritually leading the blind. Well, you, you, you can't see where you're going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you get to where you're going. I can't see either, but I'm going to help you get to where we're going. You know, they'll never admit that they can't see to that poor blind person that they're leading as they, as they walk them right into a pit, right into hell, because they're blind. They'll sound good. They'll sound wonderful if you don't know your word. If you don't know the Bible, they'll sound like they're talking. Worldly wisdom sounds so good. You know, well, you know, God doesn't want you to be living with that much pain in your life. You need to get rid of that pain. You know, and we need to be careful with that statement. Now, number one, it's a false statement of God, and number two, it is, it's false all the way around. You know, how many Christian circles have had somebody say, well, you're not happy in your marriage. God wants your marriage to be happy. You divorce that person. Now, there are times when divorce is needed and, and proper. Adultery, you know, fornication, you know, being involved. Um, you know, if somebody is being abused, they need to get out of that situation. I'm not going to say divorce because that's not one of the grounds for divorce, but get out of that situation, separate yourself, and get some, get some counseling for the, for the two. But we need to be able to understand that God says certain things, and we need to hold on to them. You know, uh, I know businessmen who are salesmen. 
Well, you can't make a sale unless you overhype your product and lie about it. And there are a lot of Christian, quote, um, Christian salesmen that stretch the truth about their products because that is the world's vision that you have to do. You know, God says don't take out loans and how many businesses run on loans? Because why? Business school teaches you don't invest your own money, use other people, invest other people's money so that when you go bankrupt, you don't lose everything. Why? Because most of the businesses go bankrupt. But here we see in these guys have polluted themselves. They have hurt those around them. You know, they cry, depart, you depart. Uh, it is unclean, depart, touch not. This statement is what the lepers were supposed to say. Stay away, unclean, stay away. So basically these leaders are saying, hey, stay away, <laughs> we're unclean. And they used it so they could flee. They wanted to leave the city and everyone around them knew that that statement was, that you were leprous. They were running away from the city. And this is literally what they said happened. They, the leaders of the city ran away. And it says that they shall no more sojourn there. They weren't even welcomed anywhere they went. Because if they stayed in Israel, they're going to go, how did you get out of the city? You must be a traitor. And if they went to the Gentiles, nobody likes them because they're leaders of the Jewish people. They weren't welcomed anywhere. And this is kind of the funny thing that happens when people get so far into sin sometimes. You become a Christian and you fall back into sin. And the church doesn't trust you because you're, in, you're, you're dealing with all the sin and you're going to all this. And those that you come back to don't trust you because you thought you were better than them when you went to the church. And you're no longer welcomed anywhere. Now hopefully the church is going to do their job and welcome you back when you repent. But you're in a really catch-22 there. It's like, you're not welcome anywhere. You, you, you thought you were better than us and went off to there, and now you're back with us. And this is the hard thing for them. These guys are in this place where nobody wants to be around them. He says, the anger of the Lord has divided them. He will no more regard them. He, they respected not the person of the priest. They favored not the elders. They gave no respect to where respect was due. What is happening in our world today? Nobody respects any authority. Children are being taught to not respect their parents. And if you don't believe it, watch any TV show that the kids are being watching and see how they disrespect adults. Their schools, they're not taught to respect the, the teachers. They're not taught to respect the police. You know, police now are fearful of stopping anybody because they don't know what they're going to find, you know, disrespecting angry, belligerent people. Uh, you know, uh, business owners are not respected because they're you know, rich, fat cats rolling in dough that have all the money in the world and you know, they're taking advantage of everybody. All the stuff that's going on, nobody respects any position of authority anymore. And again, leading toward the end times. And it's a hard place right now. It's a hard place. I don't, I'm glad I don't run a business anymore. It would be a pain in the neck having to fight employees all the time to get work done. Because so many people show up for work, and it was bad even 20, 30 years ago. Show up for work, I want a paycheck. Uh, you know, I wanted you to do some work, not just walk through the door. Well, you know, I, I came to work, I deserve a paycheck. No, I want you to actually work. 
My last business I ran, my biggest problem with, with people was that they were always on their cell phones. Anytime they got away from whatever workstation they were at, they were talking on their phone. You know, and it's like, that's, I'm not paying you to talk on your phone, I'm paying you to work. Well, this was an important call, I just had to talk to this person. No, I'm not. Well, you can't stop me from paying, you know, and I had one answer, and every time you told me that, you're right, I can't stop you from talking on your phone, you're fired. You got a choice. <laughs> stop talking or you don't have a job. But, you know, it's getting hard to have that because there is no respect for authority of any sort. Most of it in our country started in the 60s, where the big motto was question all authority. And to a degree, I understood it was a very valid thing to you know question why why are they in you know why are they in charge and all that, but it went too far. Like most good things, it went too far, and now it's get rid of all authority, and we're headed toward a socialistic communistic realm. The only thing that people don't realize is the history of communism and socialism is somebody still is in charge. Just a lot fewer people are in charge and you're going to and they're going to be more brutal in when being in charge. And that's the sad thing about it. They don't know history. And you know, as much problems as capitalism has, it's a much better system because you can drag yourself out of the bottom and, and into a higher place. When you're under socialism and communism, you cannot get higher you know, than you are. And so here is this whole thing. They, don't, they did not respect the authorities. We're going to stop here at 7 o'clock. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Lord, teach us to honor you in all that we do. Teach us to honor authority. Teach us to see you as the, the mighty God of the universe, that you are in control, that you have a plan. And Lord, keep us praying for our nation. Keep us praying for the world that we'll see a revival and, and see the end put off just a few more years. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says... The penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. 
If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.